Hey, this is Keith. I'm the pastor of Blaze Church. Welcome to our podcast. I know today's message is going to inspire you, encourage you, and lead you to know God more. If you want to connect with us, visit us online at blazechurch.org. Enjoy today's message. If we haven't met, my name is Keith. It's an honor to serve here on the Dream Team today and to uh, share God's Word with you. Uh, And we are continuing a series that we started. This is week four in our series, Grace on Repeat. And what we're doing is we're looking at one book of the Bible, really a letter that was written by a man named Paul, and the letter is called Galatians. And the reason for his writing is because there were these Greek Christians that were being told in order to be saved, in order to be accepted by God and and really, really know you're saved, you need to conform to the Jewish customs, the Jewish ways. And Paul writes to them to say, no, the gospel declares that Jesus has secured our salvation, that he has done all the work that's needed, and through faith we are saved. How many are thankful that that's the gospel, that it's not about what we do, it's about what he's done and we receive through faith. So we've been going through this uh, series together, and we're going to be in chapter four today. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter three. Uh, And what was really exciting this week was we kicked off our June small groups, and we had 78 people in a small group this first week of June small. It was just really fun. 10 different groups meeting all over every single day of the week. And uh, if you weren't in group this past week, certainly be in a group this week. We have three weeks left of our, uh, our summer semester. Uh, and if you didn't get one of these, we've got more in the back. And if not, they are online as well, the digital version. So um, we're going to get started by being a little uncomfortable, if that's all right. And if this is your first Sunday here, I'm sorry you chose today to be your first Sunday. We don't normally do things like this, and you by all means do not have to participate in this moment. Um, but I want us to actually mingle with each other for all of 15 to 20 seconds. Um, and, and here's, I'm going to give you the guidelines, okay? So introverts, stay with me. I know I'm public enemy number one right now to you. Just stay with me. Uh, all you're going going to do is simply introduce yourself by means of saying, hi, my name is and I. Okay, so hi, my name is and I. So for me, if I was introducing, hi, my name is Keith and I, I pastor people. I'm a, I'm a pastor. So kind of your name and like what you do. And here's what I want to say, like try to maybe meet someone that you don't know. There's, there's probably a good amount in here that you've like, I've never got their name before. So, okay, everyone knows the rules. Go at it. 15 seconds. Come on, just say, say hi to somebody. Just gotta say, hi, my name is. All right. Well, you're having a good time. Look at that. You're saying hi to people. You're connecting. So super fun to connect with some people and really introduce yourself. We probably all have had that moment before, even if it hasn't been structured and forced upon us. Uh, we, we enter into spaces and typically, hey, hi, here's my, here's my name. And the question I go like, what do you do? And our word for today that that helps us with is this word, identity. That all of us kind of carry with us an identity and it's oftentimes rooted in or connected to our name and what we do, kind of who we are and what we do. And you could come with me here for a moment. We're all trying to really 
like establish that identity. Like to be able to walk into a room and have some sort of security in who we are as we interact with others, forming this identity. And today what we're going to do as we read through Paul's writings is we are going to talk about the identity that has often been labeled in this word, Christian. What does it mean when we would say, maybe some of you would say to someone, I am a Christian. Well, what does that really mean? Is there an identity with that? And the word is, is unique, and probably some in this room are averse to the word Christian. You don't want to use that because maybe you've met a Christian or five, and you said, well, if that's a Christian, I will not carry that label. And then there's others that you have met a Christian or five, and you say, I was so moved by how they lived, and I'm, that's who I am. I'm a Christian. So that word we're going to start with, but we're not going to stay there because there's plenty of words that we could use, follower of Christ, uh, just be someone who knows God. I want us to start with a word that's very relatable to many, but I want to show you that there is an identity that you and I have the privilege to live in, to walk into any space and say, here's who I am because of who Jesus is and what he did. And we're going to discover that. And along with that, this is, this is going to be, we're going to have to go here together. We're going to discover, am I still that when I don't feel that? So whatever that word is for us, we'll use the word Christian. Am I still a Christian on days when I don't feel like I'm a Christian? Maybe you don't feel it because of external circumstances and challenges, or you don't feel it because of actions and decisions that you have made that day. Kind of pulling on that question of how can I know I'm saved, right? Like, I think that's one that maybe we've asked before or you've thought through before, or it's a new one that I'm putting into your mind, hopefully not creating another question for you to worry about because you've already got your own questions. But like, how do I know I'm saved? And, and what do I do with that? And so we're going to look at Paul's writings to go into that place. So I shared a little, Paul is writing to Greek believers who are being told in order to be saved, in order to be Christians, you need to keep the Jewish law. He writes this to tell them the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel, the good news declares that Jesus has completed the work so that you could be saved. And any addition to that work, any changing to that work, any taking away from that message is no longer the gospel. And that's what Paul's been saying for these first three weeks in our series. And now we're going to start at the end of what we call chapter three. But just remember when Paul wrote this, he didn't write chapter and verse number. He was writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, a letter to believers that is scripture. So we'll pick it up from chapter three, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. Would you say what's underlined with me there? We are all what? Sons of God. Okay. So I want to establish something that we see in Scripture that isn't in this verse and then come back to this verse for a moment. Every person in this room and every person in this world and all of people for all of time have been made in the image of God. It's something we believe. It's something we see in Scripture, that when God created mankind, it says in the beginning, let us make mankind in our image. So we are all image bearers of God, to which it might be easy for us to nod to that when you think of you, 
you're a pretty good person, aren't you? You're like, I look in the mirror. I could, I could get behind that. I'm an image bearer. Or your friends that believe the way you do, or your Christian friends. Or It's easy for us to accept that when people kind of fit what we call image bearers. But I want you to think now for a moment, the person who doesn't believe the way you do, doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't act the way you do, doesn't carry the same moral values you carry. That person has been made in the image of God. So what happened? Well, we read that there was what's called the fall, that humanity chose willingly to disobey God and sin entered the world. And now sin has distorted, perverted, marred the image that you and I were created to bear in this world. And so that's why we, we kind of know our stories of, but I'm an image bearer, but I certainly don't bear his image. Well, you were made to bear his image and you need the redeeming work of Jesus to have that image restored to you. So I want to start there because it's the notion that like we're all loved by God. Yes. We're all image bearers of God. Yes. But here's where the rub comes in in this verse. We are not all children of God. And we can't just lump that phrase in there and, and substitute it for image bearer, loved by, offered salvation, child, no, not child of God. Because this verse is telling us, and it's not pulling one verse out of context, this is a theme of scripture. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. John 1 12 tells us to all who did believe in him and receive him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. So we're going to start here to know, hey, you may be in this place this morning or joining us online and you are not in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you, you are loved by the father. You are invited to know the father. You are made in his image. And apart from being in the son, you are not a child yet. And that's good news and invitational news for us. So Paul's word says, for in Christ Jesus, you are, and the word is all, and then he uses this word, sons of God. Now, depending the translation of scripture you are reading from, that word sons may be translated, which simply means there are multiple translations of scripture that exist, and all of them find their rooting in the original Greek, and do their best to translate based on what they are trying to convey, will translate that word from sons maybe into children. The Greek word that's used is masculine in its form, and that's why this translation, the ESV, says sons of God. Now, we are going to go into territory for a moment that I am very aware is sensitive to many of us, if not all of us, in this place. Because the dialogue and conversation in culture and in our own homes has to do with gender. Yeah? Don't leave me feeling awkward by myself up here and be like, no, dude, you're the only one. Okay, let's just, hey, so we're going to talk for a moment and it's going to be okay. And I'm just going to read scripture and show you. So why does Paul write under the inspiration using the word sons here and not the more politically correct term that he may have used even in his writing in the first century of being gender neutral? He specifically chose a masculine word. Well, let's talk first about our original audience. I'm going to teach you a word that will make you sound so smart at your barbecue later. Okay, you ready? Write this one down. Hermeneutics. 
Don't ask me how to spell it. I'm not going to help you with that because I don't know. Hermeneutics, which is simply the word for studying scripture. What we do when we study God's word. And if you want, you can read books. I believe it's Gordon Fee has a book, The, the Treasure. If someone knows it, just call it out. The, something about the Bible. It's, it's a good book. You'll find it. Just Gordon Fee, How to Read the Bible, and it'll come up. And in it, we learn the practices of hermeneutics. And one of the things we're going to talk about now is you start with the original audience. We don't go right to 2023 Americans, okay? It's just bad hermeneutics. We start with the original audience. So when Paul writes to the original audience in the first century, it was sons who were the only ones who could inherit the rights of the father. And you might think, well, that's proof that the Bible is, you know, sexist, misogynistic. No, the Bible is telling us what was happening in culture at the time. This wasn't God's command for people to only give the estate to the sons. It was a cultural practice. So Paul writes to his cultural audience, meeting them with what they would understand, and says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Meaning, this is the beauty. It doesn't matter your race, because that's the issues with the Galatians, Greek or Jew. It doesn't matter your economic status, as we'll see, slave or free. It doesn't matter your gender distinction, male or female. In Christ, what Paul is talking about is you receive the inheritance that culture would only understand that males should ever get from the estate. It's like beautiful what he's talking about. That's hermeneutic principle one. Here's number two. You don't take things out of context. Paul is not talking about gender distinctions in this part of his writing. We know that because we've been tracking verse by verse through this gospel, through this writing. So Paul does have writings where he talks about gender distinction. You can go to Ephesians 5 for that. He talks about husbands and wives and very clearly makes gender distinction as something that God wants us to understand made in his image. Jesus affirms this when he is questioned and says, you know how it was from the beginning. God created male and female. So there's a theme throughout scripture, but just lean in this verse. And I'm just prefacing you because the verse we're about to read can be so taken out of context to say, you see, even the Bible supports doing away with gender distinction. No, that is not the context of this passage. Paul is not saying, hey, ladies, Lay down being a lady for a second and just embrace it. You are a man. That's nothing to do with this. That makes sense. I will not move on unless you say it makes sense. <laughs> right? Like, and guys, for a second, let me just bring you in. Go read Revelation because you're called the bride of Christ. Okay, it's, it's metaphor language to show us the beauties of being in Jesus. Paul's not entering into the conversation. He does in other passages, but right here, he's not entering into the conversation that you and I are having about should we still hold to gender distinction, male and female? The Bible has those parts to say. Okay, this right here, he's talking about the rights of sonship given to everyone because of the Son of God. It's wonderful. So he's, he's telling us, here's your identity. In Christ Jesus, you become the one who has received the full inheritance because of the Son. Your identity is secure because of the Son. And he goes on and says this, for as many of you, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So let me just say for a moment, water baptism matters. 
It, it, is, it is so clear in Scripture that it is our being baptized into Christ. It is our identifying with the new identity we have because of the work of Jesus in the waters of baptism. And Paul's saying, hey, you guys that were baptized, you know this. And I would say to you, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you have yet to be water baptized, this is why we say it's your best next step because it's literally the next verse. (laughs) You're in Christ Jesus, you're a son of God. And hey, as many of you as were water baptized, hey, I wasn't baptized yet. All right, well, do it in the summer. We got summer baptisms. It's great. Summer baptisms outdoors is way better than winter baptisms outdoors on Long Island. Okay, so choose your months carefully, people. Okay, they're coming up. But notice now, and I think this is so cool, He uses language of wardrobe when he says put on Christ. It's literally Greek words that would bring up this understanding of like putting on clothing. So that's like you woke up this morning and you're going into your closet and you're like, should I wear a button down? Should I wear a sweater, long sleeve, short sleeve, Jesus, turtleneck? Like he's just like right there in the closet. And Paul's giving us this imagery that we're gonna pull on for a minute because it's a metaphor. What would it look like to put on Christ. Well, here's, here's four things that I would say. It, it just shows us with that language. So clothing and Christ. First one is this, identity. Like your clothing helps you identify with a group of people. You've got your work clothes. You've got your, my, my son's fun. When he wants to play in the backyard, he'll literally say, dad, can you put your play shoes on so we can go play? Because that's what we say to him. So I was like, all right, dude, let me put my play shoes on. Like, because it's identifying me in a moment with a group that's going to play. So to like put on Christ is literally to walk in the identity that you have now because of Christ. Clothing. Here's the second thing, closeness. The metaphor of closeness. Your clothes are the closest thing to you right now. You can feel them. They are near to you. They're providing comfort. So when we put on Christ, he is so close and near to us. Say, man, I'm walking with Christ on me today. Number three, Imitation, And this is my children. We have more costumes than we probably should. And that's because my children love to dress up and imitate superheroes and princesses. And whenever they're playing their games, they'll put the clothes on, right? So just take that for a moment. When you put on Christ, you are literally imitating the one who has rescued you. It's like, man, I could act like me today, or I could choose to imitate the one who has saved me in my marriage, in my relationships, in, in my coming and going to work, all of it. Let me imitate Christ. And here's the fourth way, maybe most beautiful, clothing provides acceptability. Okay, so for, let me speak for all of us in the room. I'm so happy we all chose to wear clothes to church today. Just really avoided some awkward moments there for our welcome team, right? Parking lots, like, hey, I've got a radio in. I got someone with no clothes on. What do we do here, right? You, you knew, and maybe you, like me, you've wanted to go to a restaurant before and you've been like out in the beach gear, tank top and the flip-flops and you're rolling up and the sign says like button down shirt only. You're like, well, I guess it's Taco Bell for us, right? There's, there's a level of acceptability for our clothing. So watch this, clothing, putting on Christ, acceptability. Let's go back to the garden for a moment. When Adam and Eve chose to push against the image of God they were made in, Instantly, what did they recognize? They were what? It says they were naked and ashamed. And so they try to make themselves acceptable to a holy God with fig leaves. Now, that's drafty. I don't think that's going to cover anything up. Just sewing some leaves together. 
And then it says, when God removes them from the garden, I love this at the end of Genesis 3, it says that he clothes them. They got an acceptable garment from the God who made them. So to put on Christ is literally to put on the acceptance to the Father that can only come through Jesus Christ. You can't wear you in the presence of a holy God. So we put on Christ. So again, Paul is writing to people who are being challenged on their identity. They are Gentiles by race, non-Jews, and now they have put their faith in Jesus, but they're being told that's not enough. You need to do more. You and I have had this conversation. We feel the same pressure at times from religious communities that say, yeah, but to really be loved by God, you've got to make sure you're checking off all the boxes. You've got to show up. And last week we discovered the difference between promise and performance. So what does Paul say next? Remember our context. You are all now Bible scholars. You know hermeneutics. So we can read this verse with some confidence. Here's what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And without understanding the context, can you see how one verse could be isolated from a passage and then create a teaching that says, look, even the Bible tells us that we shouldn't have these gender distinctions any longer. Whoa, back up for a second. Paul's not talking about interpersonal relationship in this text. He's not, he's not writing about how males and females connect with each other. He's not writing about the interpersonal of a Jew and a Greek. Here's how we know. What's the whole theme of Galatians? The Greeks are being told, you need to become Jewish. So like if, if Paul were to buy that, then he would be doing away with distinction of race. But he's literally writing to say, no, stay in your Greek ways. You don't need to let go of that part of you. So what is he saying to us? In Christ, our primary identity is given to us through the Son. Meaning, and watch how beautiful this is. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you are going to form an identity possibly around one of these three big areas, race, economic status, or gender. In the first century, it was the big barriers. It's still for us today. Race, economic status, gender. And Paul says, yeah, but in Christ, because you are in him, you don't start there. You start in Christ for your identity and let it inform the other parts of your being and who you are celebrate the distinction. So like, if you have confusion in one of these areas, how great that you're invited to know the God who made you. Rest in your identity in Jesus and go on a journey from there to find clarity as it relates to your race, economic status, or gender. Like, that's the invitation of Scripture to us. So Paul here, he's not trying to do away with distinctions. He's trying to show us, but in Jesus, we don't put up the walls any longer. We don't say, oh, there's superiority because I'm a man and you're a woman. You know your place. Because I'm a Jew and you're a Greek. You know your place. Because you're a slave and I'm free. No, he's saying those walls don't exist in Christ. We are all of us in need of, what's our, what's our series? Grace on repeat. <laughs> just need that grace on repeat in our lives. So let me just say this. If one of these areas or another is where you are like, 
putting your stake in the ground for your identity, would you be open to the gospel transforming that part of your life? Say, you know what, God? I've got confusion in this, and I don't know what to do with it, but I'm coming to you, and I want the gospel to inform this. Maybe for you it's not confusion, but you know you're finding some superior attitude in one of these barriers. And you need the gospel to humble you and say, I'm no better than that person because of my economic status. And I'm no worse off because of my economic status. I'm one in Christ. It's just so beautiful. So here's Paul's next word. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now that may not matter so much to us today, but remember his first century audience. These were Greeks that were not Jewish that are being told become Jewish to get what Abraham has to give you. And Paul says, no, in Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. And this is why he's using the masculine word, heirs according to the promise, because his culture would have understood only sons could become heirs, Paul. Oh, that's great in culture. In Christ, we all become heirs to what God has for us. You're all heirs. The Judaizers' pressure could not take root in their hearts. And for us today, we can't, we can't fall to pressure that will tell us the gospel is anything but the grace of God in our lives. So he's going to give us now an illustration. What I'm saying is, it's like he's trying to like, let me, let me bring some clarity here. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Now, this is also another word that's going to bring some tension up in us. We're going to come back to it. Just stay with me for one more moment. We'll unpack what that means the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So Paul is using, again, hermeneutic students, right? We start with the original audience. We don't take things out of context. He's using against language that his audience in the first century would have understood. When he says about a slave and an heir to an estate and a time set by the father, and he's writing to Greeks, to Romans— they would understand, okay, in our home, there might be some that are free and there might be some that are not free. We translate the word over to slave, but it does not carry the same wickedness that we have seen specifically in our country when it comes to slavery. Okay, so can't take this verse out of context once again and say, oh, look, there's the Bible condoning slavery. That's not Paul's context right now. He's not talking like that. In fact, if you want to know Paul's take on slavery, read the letter of Philemon, where he writes to one who was a slave owner and had a slave, Onesimus, run away who became a believer. And look at what Paul says about that restoration and relationship. Go back to the Old Testament where God condemns any form of slavery that involves kidnapping and forcing someone to work in your home. Like it's just through scripture. It's gross mishandling of verses when we take them out of context. You won't do that because you know hermeneutics now. So what Paul is saying is he's helping them understand, okay, you know this, in this home, there might be one who's a son, right? He's going to get the estate at some point, and there's one who's a slave, really a bond servant. And in this culture, especially under Christian and Judeo law, there always had to be a means for that slave to purchase freedom. Like God did that. But he's saying, you know, in that home, underage, son, no different with access to the inheritance. It doesn't matter. He's saying, like, just think of them as if, like, they can't even get to it. They don't have the freedom to receive what's coming to them. They are underage. He uses the illustration 
and now he's going to apply it to us. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So Paul's taking cultural language and he's pulling on it as an illustration, but now he's applying it to all people, saying, when we were underage, we were in slavery. What does that mean? What is that underage state of our being? Well, what does it mean in the illustration? To be underage means there's a promise that's given, there's an inheritance for you, but you don't get to it yet. And he's pulling on that as a metaphor to say, when we were underage, when the promise of redemption was given, and to the Jewish people, the promise to Abraham, and then the law shows up, underage, waiting for the promise to be received. And in the waiting, there is this bondage to our sin. There is no way that we could free ourselves from that identity of, man, I am a sinner. I'm just trapped by this. So the question then is, how do we come of age? Who, who will bring us to that point of receiving the inheritance? And he tells us in the next verse, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. What a promise. So you and I, the we, are under the law. We are enslaved. We are in bondage. We are waiting, and the promise is there, and we have no way to get the inheritance for ourselves. And so God sends his son, notice the terms, born of a woman, born under the law. Like Jesus came and lived the life that you and I have lived, but he lived it sinless. He was under the law, and yet he did not sin. Why? To redeem those under the law. And we talked of this word last week, right? We've, we've talked of atonement and justification and redemption, and now we're going to have another gospel word in a moment. But to redeem something is to pay the price to secure the release of. It's just so good. So Jesus redeems those under the law. Why? So that we might receive, and here's our identity, adoption to sonship. You are in Christ, an adopted child of God. And the adoption fee for you was the blood of Jesus. And that should let you know how much the Father loves you. How you are made in his image that God would send his son to redeem you. And again, Paul's using that word sonship so that we can understand first century listeners the magnitude of it. Let me read this, a commentary. In Paul's day, a childless wealthy man could take one of his servants and adopt him as a son. At that moment, he stopped being a slave, identity, and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate and outside in the world as the son or heir. So even in first century, the audience would have known, oh, remember, they're Greek. I've done this, or I've seen my neighbor do this, where they adopted someone in their home and their identity went from slave to son because the father paid the price. He said, I'll bring you into my family. And the price the father paid for you was his son, Jesus. So uh, we're, we're, our children, Nate and Cece, uh, just 
teaching them the gospel, sharing with them the depth of the gospel at their age, nine and almost seven. And I'll often ask them, like, why did God send Jesus to this world? And the immediate quick answer is always to forgive me of my sins. And my response is, and? And? And it's because they're half there. And, and too many of us are half there. God didn't simply send Jesus in this world to take something away from us, our sin, but also to give something to us, a new identity. So it's he removes our sin, but then we're not just left wondering again, identity confusion. Well, who am I now? I'm saved, but what does that mean? No, he came to give you the full rights that belong to him because he is the perfect lamb of God. So here's the full answer to that. And you can help my kids if you see him as well, okay? So why did God send Jesus into the world? Well, Jesus removes the curse we deserve and gives us the blessing he deserves. He removes the curse we deserve and gives us the blessing he deserves. That's the gospel. That is the application to our lives of Christ's perfect work feels real good in this setting. Remember where we started? How do I know who I am? Well, this is who you are, adopted child of God. But the second part, what about when I don't feel like it? What about on days where it is so hard to walk in that identity? What about maybe because of decisions or choices you're making or external forces that are coming at you and you're just like, I don't know, I'm supposed to be this adopted child of God, but right now I really don't feel that. Okay, here's the gift the Father sends to us. And watch the parallel language that Paul uses. First, he says, God sent his son. Now look what he writes next. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So look at this. I just love this verse for our somewhat understanding of God and his identity as three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But Paul is saying, okay, you know this. God sent his Son to do this redeeming work for you. The adoption process involved the Son laying down his life. So here's, here's what I'll tell you to write down. The Son provides an objective legal condition. Objective meaning it doesn't change. It's like an objective truth. It is just a law that is, that is in place, objective. On the days you don't feel like an adopted child of God, your feelings don't get to change the objective truth that has been declared because God sent his son. It's who you are. But what about the days where I don't feel it? Oh, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart who is calling out to the father, Abba, Father. So write this word down. It's subjective experience. So you've got the Son working from the outside in to transform our hearts, and then the Spirit working from the inside out to make true to our emotions and intellect who we are, what is actually true of us legally because of what Jesus did. I mean, this is awesome. Someone say amen a little bit louder there. I'm, I'm fired up a little bit. You can be a little, just a tad bit of Pentecostal in you. Just a little bit. I mean, it's got me excited because this is good news. Because guess what? There are days I don't feel like an adopted son of God. And if you caught a glimpse of me, you saw our little banter on here. That was tame. You caught a glimpse of us. You would say, there ain't no way they're adopted children of God the way they're going at it. Okay, it's the spirit inside that is calling out to the Father with such an intimate term. In fact, the Hebrew words used here, Abba, 
which is really best understood as like baby talk. It's that closeness of a child with a parent. So for me, like my kids have given me a nickname that they came up with, that they call me. I am their D-Daw. I have no idea where it came from. They made it up. They had no problems calling out D-Daw in the middle of a supermarket. And I'm like, good Lord, it's happening in public. I'm not like that at all. I'm actually like, man, there is no more intimate and beautiful term that I would ever have than my kids who know they can with full confidence call out to D-Daw and ask what they want of me. And they do it because of our intimate relationship. So the Spirit of God in you is calling out to the Father, reminding you, even in moments where you don't feel like an adopted child of God, this is an objective truth secured by the Son, and it's being made real in experiences daily through the work of the Spirit. That's what it means to be a Spirit-filled believer. The Spirit calling out to the Father. So, identity. Paul's next verse, and the one we'll, we'll end with, shows us there really is only two identities that we can choose as we relate to the God who made us in his image. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Meaning, when it comes to being an image bearer of God and resting in what the gospel calls us to, the truth of the one who made you and knows you and desires for you to know him, you relate to your creator either as a slave or as a son. And again, don't twist that with gender. It's, it's just that heir and inheritance. Okay, so that's, that's your two ways of relating to the one who made you. So here's the question for you to now ask yourself on your ride home. Am I acting like a slave who is afraid of God or like a child who is assured of my father's love. Come on, how are, you, how are you acting? Who are you being in situations? And there could be moments where it's like, oh, I know I'm resting in my father's love in this one, but then get me in a different environment. Get me around different people. Get me at work. Get me on the road. Get me in this moment. And it feels like I'm coming to the father more like afraid than with the full confidence and assurance that a child would have approaching their father. I love seeing the confidence in my kids. Even if they know I'm gonna say no, they still come up with confidence of, can, can I have just one more Pringle, please? <laughs> just, just one more? They just, they just come with confidence because I'm their Dida. And you have an Abba Father made possible by the work of the Son, made real by the work of the Spirit. So, this week, I had moments where I related more to the father as one who would be afraid than as a confident son. I had moments where I was living out more values of worry and doubt and trying to control outcomes and, and getting all twisted and not resting in the peace that comes with knowing my father's in control. So on Tuesday, when I wrote this message and I was having one of those moments, I just started writing what I'm calling a mantra, which is just something for us to say together and for maybe you to take back with you to hold on to for those moments. Biblical truth, but the way I just wrote it out and then sat before the Holy Spirit and said, I am so grateful that you're gracious. So here's what I wrote. I'm gonna read it first and then we're gonna declare it together. And if you wanna like take a picture of this or uh, we're gonna be emailing this out later this week as well, but here's what I wrote. Because of Jesus, my identity is child of God. 
I put on Christ and experience his nearness in every area of my life. As an heir, I have inherited every blessing that belongs to Jesus. I don't live like a slave to sin. I've been redeemed from the curse. On days when I don't feel saved, the spirit reassures me of my identity. I live humbly, walking in confidence, assured of my father's love for me. I am a child of God. And that's your identity. If you are in Christ today, that's the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. And my prayer for you is that you would live from that identity, primary, and allow the spirit to make it true to you every single day. So here's what we're gonna do to end. I'm gonna ask everyone who's able to stand and we're gonna declare this. And, and I invite you like declare it out loud with maybe some force behind your voice so that we can say, this is who I am. This is who God calls me to be. And as we conclude, our worship team is going to sing a truth that is true for us, that we can take God at his word. And as they're singing, we're gonna leave this place. So if you wanna stay and finish up the service with them, you can, but head on out to the lobby, have some community with people. But I want us to go out kind of rejoicing at the truth that God has given us today. So let's sing this out. Say this out. Because of Jesus, my identity is child of God. I put on Christ and experience his nearness in every area of my life. As an heir, I have inherited every blessing that belongs to Jesus. I don't live like a slave to sin. I've been redeemed from the curse. On days when I don't feel saved, the spirit reassures me of my identity. I live humbly, walking in confidence, assured of my father's love for me. I am a child of God. Can you give Jesus a good hand clap of praise? Blaze Church, have the best week of your life. We will see you next Sunday for Hope for Uruguay offering. God bless, you are his child.